Well, what does sauna mean? Sauna just means whole body exposure to hot air. And the differences between how you heat the air is where the different types of saunas come in. So you can have um, an infrared sauna that uses infrared rays, kind of, you know, one spectrum over from the microwave, you know, where it heats objects a little more than, than the air. So that's, that's an infrared sauna. Um, whereas something like an electrical, that's using radiant heat. So it's, it's the source of the heat that tends to describe um, the type of sauna. And then when you think of a wet sauna or a steam sauna, that's where you're being, you have a source of, of moisture that's increasing the humidity. Welcome to the Degrees of Health podcast. Dr. Joy Hussein is a medical practitioner promoting wellness and evidence-based sauna therapies. She completed her PhD at RMIT University on the topic of health effects, frequent sweating, and sauna bathing. She's currently working to adapt sauna-based experimental protocols for lifestyle medical applications, such as cardiovascular disease, cardiac rehabilitation, and how the sauna can help women go through menopause. We cover the sauna with exercise benefits, we cover when females should and shouldn't use the sauna, and the human need to sweat. Imagine a pill that lowered Alzheimer's risk by 65%, increased runtime to exhaustion by 32%, lowered hypertension by 46%, reduced stroke risk by 62%. There is no pill, just the power of the sauna. With that, here's my conversation on all things sauna with Dr. Joy Hussein. Well, Dr. Joy Hussein, thank you so much for spending your time with us this morning. Well, this afternoon, I should say, for you, this evening. <laughs> yes, well, it's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> well, pleasure to have you on. When I was trying to think of uh, a first question for you, we were, we were trawling through lots of your, your research you did, and you've been studying this for, for a reasonable amount of time now, and as someone who studied the sauna so much, how have your own motivations changed from when you first started using it personally to coming at the end of all this research? Well... It's been a good decade, you're right, since I um, started a PhD in it and then finished it uh, a couple of years ago. Um, well, mostly it's experimenting with the mental benefits of sauna, probably. You know, I fell into sauna bathing for the physical um, well-being as well as I have Raynaud's syndrome, which is a it's a spasm of the tiny capillaries that are in your in your um, fingers. And so I stumbled into using sauna as treatment for that initially, so for a physical reason. And so I wasn't surprised when I started doing my PhD early on and saw that most of the research early on is in cardiovascular benefits. And this is a vascular condition, so it makes sense. But what has changed me and made me grow into sauna more are the mental health benefits that I've been I've been researching and seeing um, in myself and others as well as seeing in the in the literature. I mean I'd love to love to dive into that at some point. I mean the the um the mental benefits I feel like everyone who uses sauna regularly can relate to anecdotally, but they feel like the literature is just creeping up with that anecdotal feeling people can know intuitively. Do you, yes. Would you agree with that? Is there literature sort of there or thereabouts with the mental health? Yes. Well, of? how I how I um, 
how I discovered the mental health benefits was I did a I conducted a large global sauna survey back in 2016. And it was online and involved 29 different countries. I had over 500 participants really complete quite an extensive questionnaire. It was like over 72 questions about their habits, about um, about if they used it for medical reasons or why why they saw it, what their motivations were. And what came out of that really surprised me. Um, First of all, uh, the top three reasons for using the sauna were not the top three reasons that were being researched in the science in the science community. So, number one was um, uh, for back pain. So a lot of people use sauna for back pain. Uh, another one was other musculoskeletal pain. Um, so other joints and issues. And then the other one was for a mental condition. And I was. Yeah, I was kind of gobsmacked by that. I was like, wow, <laughs> that's, you know, I didn't realize that, but it kind of it started to make sense. And then also another finding in this, in this global sauna survey, which is called a cross-sectional survey, is that um, over 86% said they slept better, not just for one night, but for two nights after using the sauna. And again, that made me stop and wonder and go, wow, if you're getting it for two nights, it's not just the acute effects. There's something else going on. And so those are the things that started to put my antenna out for studies that were looking at um, more mental, mental well-being or mental health. And then there was one last thing, sorry, on the, um, uh, or go ahead. I should let you, Mm -mm. I should let you. No, please. Tangents are great. And I I love them. Please don't let me interrupt. (laughs) The other thing I did is I analyzed, I had embedded a a mental and physical quality of life tool. It's called SF12. It was based on 12 questions that were in the survey. And what I found in those, the more frequently people sauna bathe, the more, the, the higher their mental health scores were, not necessarily physical health. So again, it was another one of these light, you know, lightning moments where I said, wow, I think maybe we're focused. We've just been focusing on physical, but there's a whole mental dimension. Okay. Well, I mean, if, if it's okay with you, should we dive into the mental dimension? That would be, a, I think it would be a great place to kick off. Do you, sure. do, do you like a proposed mechanism? How, how, how would that work? And I appreciate there's lots of different theories and hypotheses out there, but, um, well, yeah, what, what do you there's think? a lot of different hormones, um, especially that are mediated through the hypothalamus that and that actually um, are activated when we're in heat and when we're sweating. So I actually think it's the combination. I'm, I'm not convinced it's only one or the other. I think it's a combination of our response or thermoregulation to heat, which has a lot of mechanisms we're still working out but they involve a lot of different neurohormonal pathways um, as well as um, uh, the, the actual sweating. I think we, there's a lot in sweat that we don't understand and we're just on the tip of the iceberg. And in fact, I almost ended up doing my PhD on sweat alone because it was so fascinating, but Thank goodness um, my PhD supervisor at the time, Mark Cohen, said, no, no, look, you were doing this for sauna, not for sweat. And I said, you're right. (laughs) But sweat is fascinating. And I actually think a lot of communications, a lot of things come out in sweat, not just the detox kind of 
compounds that we think of. There's a lot of hormones in our sweat and a lot of lot more fatty substances, fatty lipid-based molecules than we ever imagined. So, and the think- other thing about sweating is it is so uniquely human. I don't, I think a lot of us spend a lot of time trying to get away from sweat and sweating and covering it up when really there are some evolutionary biologists who actually argue that sweating is what's allowed human beings to get to the top of the mammalian chain because we're one of the few species that actually can still move, is not completely paralyzed by overheating. We actually can still function as long as we can sweat. That's the key. Do you think there's a key to sweating and the mental health side of the coin? Yes. I don't know what the connections are yet, but I'm just willing to place a bet that there is something about sweating. And I think most people you talk to after working up a good sweat, whether that be by exercise or by sauna, people describe this kind of uh, purification. And, And in fact, there's a lot of historical literature about the feeling of purification that many of us get after being in the sauna. Mm. So I, I suspect there are hormones. Do we know, do we have it all worked out? No, I don't think so. But I think there's something to that. And then you would ask me originally about what has changed. Well, I also think there's probably something to contrast therapy too. I, I think there, whether that's double edges of the same sword, I'm not absolutely sure because definitely with a cold immersion after following heat, you're not sweating, but I do wonder what type of pathways might be being activated and if they might be similar in terms of, um, and the other thing is our mind. I mean, we're still trying to figure out what actually, what are the mechanisms that go through our mind? It is still really early days, I think, with that. I think uh, I think the modern world puts a lot of emphasis on what can be quantified. and so. If a, a if a feeling can't be quantified yet through uh, academic theory of research, whatever it is, some people need that to actually give it a go. And I'd say that just through, I mean, Eloise and I's research and starting this podcast and having uh, conversations with this community, you can mm-hmm. see lots of um, anecdotal examples, but replicated for mental health in the sauna community and the cold community. And you can have a, there's this wonderful group in Edinburgh called Edinburgh Blue Balls. It's a men's, men's mental health swimming group. And uh-huh. uh, a lot of great anecdotes coming from there saying, they don't know what it is, but it's something about the cold water and the connection. Amazing for my mental health. And it's, it, it, it really has been a game changer. And then similar anecdotes of the sauna. And I'd say to anyone who's sort of curious, maybe struggling with mental health at all, don't, you don't necessarily need to wait for a paper, just give it a try. There's no, no, nothing, uh, nothing lost, but a lot of anecdotes. Uh, from that saying the mental health side of the coin is really, really boosted by yes. the temperature. And, and just looking at history, I mean, if you think about, say, some of the Native American ceremonies about the sweat lodge, I mean, what is that sweat lodge? It is, in, a, in essence, a type of uh, sauna with some spiritual overlay. So, and there's a lot of ayahuasca ceremonies in South America that are also around being in the heat. So, Again, you asked me, do I think sweating and heat are involved with our mind? No question. It's just figuring out the pathways and figuring out how we can best adapt that or use that. 
Um, mm. And then you also said, yeah, I should give it a go. And I tend to say that to people because there's been a lot of, um, and over time, like when you look 20 years ago, there was a lot more caution around getting into saunas. Like, I don't know, I'm old enough to remember you see these little placards that say, look, if you have a cardiac or heart condition, please check with your doctor before before you get into the sauna. And I remember later as I was starting my PhD, you know, thinking about that and thinking, well, first of all, what is your doctor going to say? Because <laughs> not a lot of, not, you know, doctors are starting to wake up to, but to the uses of sauna, but what would they would have said? And now I think we need to be reframing those placards because now we found that people with heart conditions are actually the ones who might best benefit physically from, from a sauna. So maybe we should say, these placards should say, uh, please talk to your doctor about how best to use the sauna for your cardiac condition or, or heart condition. I think, um, I think that medical community, they're the ones who do need a lot more academic research to take by into the sort of the whole preventative medicine feel. I think it was something like 92% of all medicine in Europe was, was, uh, was the opposite of preventative medicine. It was they were waiting for something wrong and then they'll treat it. Um, although I think there's a, yeah. there's a shift coming. Um, you talk about sweating. I know you've studied it extensively. Um, in a world of pollution and environmental toxins, mm -hmm. how important is um, sweating on a regular basis? And then where does the sauna come into that? Well, um, like I said, there's a lot more in sweating, not just there's physical content. And I think the, the pathways that get activated, then, then we really know. Um, and also there's a big, I think, uh, um, disconnect between that detox. Detox actually creates a lot of issues in the medical community because most doctors or, or medical doctors, when they hear detoxification, we're actually thinking of um, pathways that involve the liver and the kidney more predominantly to, to remove things like um, heavy metals or a particular uh, medication. Whereas really, um, I think the detox, a lot of people talk about feeling um, which I think is valid is more a, that purification, more a clearance of metabolic toxins, toxins that are normally made there. I mean, when we exercise, we're creating metabolic toxins that need to be cleared. And I think that's one of the ways sweating helps clear. Now, having said that, I've also been involved in a study that documented in our sweat, we do have, uh, or at least here in Australia, the women that I studied had levels of organophosphate pesticides, as well as um, synthetic pyrethroid uh, pesticides. So we have these in our sweat, no, no question. And it's not just contamination. I did it very carefully with, in a field what's called metabolomics, where we show that it, it isn't just being contaminated from the outside. It, this, is, this is in our sweat and it's coming from inside the sweat gland. But is that really our major clearance pathways for these types of toxins? Um, I, I don't think so. I think it's, it's an adjunct way of, of clearing some toxins, but I think mostly our liver and our kidneys are where most of that is happening. But could you, with repeated sweating, using the sauna frequently, the small amounts that are in our sweat, could that be clinically significant? Sure, over time. 
And in fact, there are some studies, um, usually that come out of the Scientologist community, that use it for like getting off drugs naturally. A lot of their protocols that were first created by Ron Hubbard, they're all very um, sauna intensive, like five hours of sauna a day, that type of intense, but with other, with other interventions as well. So it's confusing. I think that whole term detox and detoxification mm. just get confused. I think yes, I I, I I think I can see that because it's a larger a larger thing of how you can rid a uh, something through your liver and all these these different things. Um, you spoke about metabolic toxins. Can you give like an example of what a, what a me- what's a metabolic toxin and why is it important to excrete or to sweat through so on, uh, through the sweat? Okay, well, it's and actually this is one of the mechanisms that gets talked about uh, with sauna. Um, when we exercise or even just breathing, we are creating what's called reactive oxygenated species. These are quite um, unstable molecules that are in our lungs that get into our bloodstream. And in fact, you're probably familiar with the terminology like antioxidants. Well, things like vitamin C and all these uh, other supplements that can sometimes help the mechanisms to clear these reactive oxygenated species. And there are a few scattered studies that show that sauna is does stimulate some of these pathways that that reduce or clear some of these reactive oxygen do we have enough data to conclude anything no but but do i suspect that that's playing a role i do and it would be interesting to see where that goes in the future mm. it's really interesting i mean there's all these it's so multifaceted like facetated where all these different mechanisms play a part and I think people want to pigeonhole one mechanism so for example going back to mental health you get this whole community say it's all BDNF it's all an increase in something called brain-derived neurotrophic factor yes which there's correlations between people um, who aren't feeling so good mentally and low BDNF but then you get people who say it's all inflammation and so the lower the reactive oxygen species the better the mental health but actually it can be a combination of everything um and I, I guess this is the hard thing from like a scientist like yourself of how do you control all these different factors and and uh, test for one individual? I mean, very hard you job. You can't, and that's <laughs> you're you're stumbling <laughs> on a big flaw. I mean, we are multi-system beings, and it's going on. And I think our model of scientific inquiry has always been very reductionist. Like, try to come up with a hypothesis that tests one thing and control for the others. When really that it's more and more difficult to do, especially when you're trying to study something like the sauna or like exercise that affects so many different pathways at the same time. So I prefer to look at trying to, trying to just get, trying to put together all the different things that could be happening and then work backwards to try and figure out. And, and instead of just focusing on one pathway. Um, but I find this in medicine in general. We, we, it's that pharmaceutical mindset, too, of trying to use, trying to be specific to one pathway. When I really think our living experience is actually multiple pathways going on continuously. And synchronously, you know, synch- I'm not saying it right, but in synchrony too. So how to capture all of that in research studies or a randomized controls trial, you know, with a control group 
I just find that very confining in, in our thinking and, and our mm. understanding. It's hard. It's hard. I mean, if the study can be replicated, wonderful. You know, I think uh, there's got to be a pinch of salt is, uh, of like directionally correct research. And hopefully that inspires others to do more research in that in that, uh, yeah. and in that Another complication with that is women versus men. So that's something in the sauna literature. Oh, my gosh. The, women are totally discounted. There's so there's only a handful of studies that are incorporated more and more now, thank goodness. But when I was looking, doing my initial review uh, 10 years ago, it was almost all men. They would always exclude women um, because it's well known that female hormones like estrogen and progesterone play a huge role in our thermoregulation. I mean, we know that from, think about the rhythm method and and controlling fertility. It's all about tracking your body temperature until it reaches a certain point. The rhythm method? Yeah, well, that's a... I'm not, I'm not familiar with that. Oh, okay. It's a, well, it, most of us women to track our, uh, before we had these wonderful apps, <laughs> we used to track our periods by our body temperature. And what happens at ovulation, you get a rise of over one degree in your internal uh, body temperature, which you could do from an oral temperature or from checking through your ear. And so that degree, that big step is quite a confounder when you're studying um, something like an infrared sauna that guess what? Increases your body, your internal body temperature by about a degree, which I've just shown in a recent study that I did with just women. So you can see, I can understand why they excluded women a lot in the beginning, but now it's very important that we include women because this, this, is, this is telling us that uh, it's a lever. Sauna is a lever that, we're, that is, could be quite useful, especially in women. I mean, men too, but women particularly with the rise in the estrogen. So, so do you, what what are the differences, and why do you say especially females have to uh, well take notice? Of um, let's think about it. Uh, women with their menstrual cycle, a monthly cycle, we have it's like an orchestra of hormone levels, and the orchestra has to be just right to get everything going for ovulation and for to have our menstrual period. Men's testosterone levels, which is their major um, gender sex hormone tends to be much more stable through a day as well as through time in general. Whereas women, as we get older, things change. Obviously, you know, when we go through puberty, things change. And then when we go through uh, pregnancy, things change. And when we go through um, perimenopause, things change. These levels of these, you know, relative levels of all these different hormones. So very different. And when you're studying... Um, something like sauna that influences thermoregulation, which is also influenced by these sex hormones so much. There needs to be, we need to be studying not only both, but separately too, to get a sense of how they can be different in their effects. Are there a, any gender specific, I mean, actually female specific benefits um, of the sauna that um, our female listeners can, can take in their, in their notebook uh-huh. of reasons why to sauna? I was hoping you would ask that. <laughs> I mean, I'm actually trying to set up a study right now looking at perimenopause when women get suffer from hot flushes. Many women do. It's probably about 80% of women do. And I don't think it's an accident that we get hot flushes, you know, something that's impacting our thermoregulation. 
And that's where I think sauna might be. I've, I've got to test it, but definitely from my sauna survey results of a few years ago, it made me wonder if it could be beneficial for women. So one of the theories is that we, you know, we live in this comfort crisis. I think there's a good book out about, you know, that we keep ourselves comfortable. And that means not sweating. That means working, sleeping, always in these temperature controlled environments. And with us women, for, you know, in particular, when we're about to go through menopause, perimenopause, which can be about 10 years before you actually go through menopause, you start to get fluctuations in your estrogen and progesterone levels. And considering how much that impacts your thermal regulation, that's what makes thermal regulation start to go awry. That's one of the, those first things. And my theory is if, and this is what I'd love to do a trial on, is if you have someone that's already exercising or using their thermoregulatory mechanisms regularly, maybe as your estrogen levels drop, maybe you won't be so susceptible to getting those hot flushes. And it's just something anecdotally I've noted in my community is those of us that regularly sauna didn't have as much issues with hot flushes as others. But do I have the, do I have the studies to back that up? Not yet, but that's something that's near and dear to my heart that I really want to study next. Not yet is the is the right answer. I love that. The <laughs> it makes me think of the um the study where they had group A and group B and they put them both through a cycling um program for eight weeks. I think it was eight weeks. Uh group A didn't have any sauna after, group B had a 20-minute sauna after, and group B were superior in all sort of cardiovascular fitness metrics at the end of it. And the proposed mm -hmm. mechanism, and please correct me if I'm wrong, Joy, was the, they're more essentially more heat adapted. Um, their thermoregulatory system was better able to handle the heat and which happens in exercise as well. Is that like the similar mechanism to what you're thinking with this, um, uh, the hot flush, I guess, yes. better able to deal and with And in fact, flushing? I think you're referring to Dr. Lee's study who he's, he's done some great work, Eric Lee. Um, and he's worked with the, I call it the king of sauna research, uh, Yari Lakanen out of Finland. And yes, I definitely think um, you're bringing up this, I think thermoregulation is the key. It's an adaptability and acclimatization um, that I think goes on. And I refer to it, I have a coin I use, or a coin term, I call it sauna fitness, which is, almost similar to cardiac fitness or exercise fitness. And again, what is that fitness? That's that adaptability, that ready to, your body's ready to uh, react appropriately to a stimulus. And I think, yes, I would totally agree with that conclusion that, that they said and that you, and that you understood from that study. Okay. A few, a few. The, um, I, I've been a long term user, you know, user of the sauna for a number of years now. And um, I used to do lots of uh, reasonably competitive CrossFit. So basically exercise racing for people who have too much time on their hands. Um, I uh -huh. used to wear a heart rate monitor around my sort of torso here. And uh -huh. I would do a workout and then wonderful get in the sauna for 20 minutes after. And mm -hmm. um, when I would go back and look at my heart rate during the workout and then the sauna, you couldn't really see a distinction between when I was working out and then when I was in the sauna. And it's like from my from a heart point of view, it seemed like I was still exercising whilst I was in the sauna. Could you could you speak to that? 
Well, yes, that's one of the studies that I've just done recently with women. And it was called, uh, I used, uh, I called it infrared sauna as exercise mimetic, big question mark. And my conclusion from it is, yes, I think exercise, or I think uh, a dry sauna, and we need to come back to this distinction, dry versus wet saunas. We'll come back to that. But definitely a dry sauna, like an infrared sauna, or like a finished style sauna, um, does mimic a lot of the cardiovascular, so heart rate, blood pressure, heart rate variability, which we'll come to too. All of those are similar. What I noted to be different though, the key physiological differences between infrared sauna and exercise, and I did aerobic exercise. Um, I used uh, an indoor bicycling with the women that I ran in my study. But the major difference was number one, the internal uh, core body temperature. We're coming back to that. So definitely with an infrared sauna, you get a full degree higher than you do with exercise. Um, so that was the number one thing. The number two thing I found is that you don't breathe as fast. So it's interesting that that heart rate uh, chest band that you wore, by any chance, it wasn't a Zephyr or anything that also tracked breathing, did it? Because I, I used a chest band heart rate monitor for my for the study that I did. If it did, I wasn't aware of the features. It's probably like a toy where I only use about 5% of it. Um, I don't, I'm not unsure. I've still got it somewhere. I'll have, well, I'll I'm willing to bet that you were not breathing as fast. And in not in the sauna as compared to oh, when you were exercising. And you were not, therefore, were not producing as many of those metabolic toxins I talked about, reactive oxygenated species. So... That's one of the theories that I'm trying to put forth is that actually sauna can be a great, quote, exercise, getting a lot of the same benefits, cardiovascular, but without the, the added stress of breathing and what comes with breathing fast. And think about it, um, or I think about it a lot with the patients that I see who have difficulty exercising. Usually what's the difficulty? Well, sometimes it can be a physical difficulty, but usually it's that, oh, I just can't, you know, I can't hack breathing. I, you know, I, I'm just not fit. And that's where I think we might be able to use the sauna for those who have difficulty exercising. And, and I'm thinking particularly people who have lung difficulties, whether it's asthma or COPD, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, you know, or emphysema, sometimes called these are the populations, people that I think could really get benefit from using the sauna for the cardiovascular benefits, but without putting all that extra stress on their, on their pulmonary, on their lungs. The rest that of the is so interesting. So in the sauna, you breathe less or you breathe more efficiently, would you say? Yeah, than you when breathe you like at rest, like at rest. Wow. So I actually did a controlled intervention when I put the women through these different interventions. And there was no difference between the breathing rate between sauna and when they were just doing like a control meditation. Whereas in the exercise, they were breathing a full six to 10 breaths per minute more compared wow. to the others. Am I right in saying lactic is a byproduct of oxygen? You know, lactic acid is, 
it's going through a lot of um, permutations in our understandings. Yes, there there is a kind of outdated concept that we, when we stress our muscles, especially in an anaerobic uh, environment, that you produce a lot more lactic acid. But actually, lactic acid, in my understanding now, as a, as a metabolite, is is getting a lot more. Um, attention as not necessarily as bad as we used to think and that it can cross the blood brain barrier. And look, I'm not an expert on lactate metabolism, but my understanding about lactate is it's a lot more complicated than we used to think 20 years ago. So, Mm -hmm. uh, so I can't, yeah, I haven't tested lactate levels, but um, I know that there's a lot of sports science research that's coming out about uh, lactate. I've been listening to a lot of podcasts where I go, wow, there's a lot more going on there. And it, it may not be as, quote, bad as we used to view the, mm. the, lac- the quote, lactate accumulation hypotheses. So. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, the only reason why um, the sparking thoughts of um, if you're exercising and your lactic threshold, quote unquote, is a barrier to actually work your heart and your sort of end of th- your, your cardiovascular system, maybe the sauna is a is a way to sort of avoid that lactic but get the still the same aerobic benefits i have I something similar but i don't know enough to to really weigh in on that argument neither, neither do that i one. neither do i just uh, <laughs> just uh uh getting excited after a coffee and a chat with you joy which is great um the so many different routes to go down here um because it's so well, interesting actually, could i revisit one of the things you brought up about or we were talking about types of sauna. So what type of yes. sauna were you doing, do you do with your exercise? Um, for me, more, so I've, I, saw, I used to live in Sydney, I used to live in Singapore, and then now I'm in London. And everywhere I had access to was always a dry sauna. So I've never actually been in infrared, um, occasionally a, a wet sauna, but specifically um, dry for me. What, 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 okay. what about you? What about yourself? Uh, well, I have two different saunas on in my in my clinic. I've got a an infrared sauna as well as a larger, more traditional um, finish style sauna. So with an electric heater. Um, and what's the difference? And differences? I view them as similar but different a bit too in their in their effects. But but that's purely anecdotal. I'm still in fact that study that I told you about where I compared infrared sauna to bicycling, I actually had a, and to control, I actually had a fourth arm that was a traditional sauna. Um, but the gym that I was doing the study at, they sprang a leak in their traditional sauna. So they had to close it down and refurbish it. And I couldn't actually do that arm, but I would have loved to see if some of these physiological um, measures were, were going to be similar or different, especially the the rate, the rise in temperature, the rise in body temperature, I would have been interested to see if it's as much um, and the amount of sweating because I did collect sweat. I didn't collect total body sweat, but I was collecting sweat with these different interventions too. And anecdotally, again, I didn't collect total body sweat, but those that were exercising uh, produced more sweat, but it didn't stick around on their um on their skin long long enough for me to collect as much as it did on the infrared sauna and in fact i did measure skin temperatures and no question of it the infrared sauna 
was associated with a higher skin temperature. And I looked at four different places, foreheads, forearms, as well as the back. No question of it. There was higher skin temperatures with the infrared sauna as opposed to the uh, the bicycling. Uh, interesting. That So um, for can you explain what the difference is between a dry finished sauna and a, an infrared sauna? Well, an infrared sauna is using, well, what does sauna mean? Sauna just means whole body exposure to hot air. And the differences between how you heat the air is where the different types of saunas come in. So you can have um, an infrared sauna that uses infrared rays, kind of, you know, one spectrum over from the microwave, you know, where it heats objects a little more than, than the air. So that's, that's an infrared sauna. Um, whereas something like an electrical, that's using radiant heat. So it's, it's the source of the heat that tends to describe um, the type of sauna. And then when you think of a wet sauna or a steam sauna, that's where you're being, you have a source of, of moisture that's increasing the humidity. And what's interesting about a steam sauna is I think it's actually an increase, well, based on looking at the studies so far, there's some good ones out of Poland and there's some good ones out of Germany. Uh, the cardiac load is higher, no question of it, with a steam sauna or the higher the humidity is compared to a low humidity. And that has to do with our ability to thermoregulate when you're sweating or, or thermoregulate or sweating. So Ironically, when you're in a steam sauna, you're not sweating as much because actually there's, you can't sweat. There's this term we refer to as hydromyosis. When you actually moisten your skin, saturate it, it, it makes it so that there's nowhere to evaporate. I mean, how does sweat, how does sweating cool us off? It's that evaporation step. And think about it. How much can you evaporate in 100% humidity? Think about a humid day versus a dry day. Why is it more uncomfortable on a humid day? It's because you can't thermoregulate. You can't get rid of that sweat. So, and there was a nice German study. I think his name was Zeck. It was a very funny study where they looked at the sweat content of men that were um, in the sauna versus a, uh, and they used, they radioactively labeled the water that was being poured over the stove in the, finished sauna. And what they found is that the quote sweat that the men were having during the time of pouring the, the water, you know, with the high humidity, it had more to do with the water in the air than it had water that was tagged into people sweating. So, and then in Poland, there's a, a Dr. Wanda Pilch did a, has done a wonderful set of studies. It was her and her whole lab, Sizua, I think was his name. I'm not pronouncing their names very right, but there was a whole series where they've looked at men and women separately and no question of it, the load on the cardiac, the blood pressure, the heart rate, all the responses, it's more intense with the same temperature, but with humidity being increased. That's so, really interesting. I've always anecdotally, I've felt that the steam room or the, the Haman, I don't know what the official term is, uh -huh. um, a wet sauna, I, I'm unsure. Anecdotally, it's always it's a lot harder after exercise. It's, huh. it's more of a fight, more of a dog fight. 
Well, it's because you are exerting more. Now, I, I have no idea whether we breathe as hard. In fact, it makes me wonder whether our respiratory rate might be more increased in the steam zone. Don't know. We haven't done the studies yet, but I would uh. love to. That's something that I think could be going on. And look, I partly would it would it be too simple to say, oh, but I think a dry sauna is better for you because it's associated with more sweating. But I can tell you from my sauna survey, there is a dedicated group of people that find more health benefits with the steam sauna compared to the dry sauna. So I'm not going to mm. go there. It needs we still got a lot of exploring to do. It's so interesting. I think a lot of the literature is dominated in dry Finnish sauna because it's mostly come out of Finland, right? So yeah. maybe there's like a literature bias there. Why I would yeah. love to, I'd be so interested to read this study, which to my knowledge doesn't exist, but where you have two groups of the same exercise program, but the only difference in variable is a 20 minute sauna, dry, finished dry, and then a wet sauna. And to see who has more sort of cardiovascular gains at the end of well, it. That's the Polish studies. That's the Polish research group. I can send you those. Pilch is her name. And um, they've done a series of that where they've looked at, and no question, they've concluded that they didn't do breathing rate, but they've concluded that heart rate and blood pressure responses are associated with a higher load in the steam song compared to ah. them. So they, so they can... did that. I'll, I'll try and send you those studies. Yeah, please um, do. I'd... That's a that's a nice Saturday morning for me. So great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's and so that's uh, it's that and that study that the Germans did about sweat content and where is the water coming from? You know these these uh, labels, these radioactively labeled hydrogens that they used. Where is it coming from? Well, definitely. So when you're in a steam sauna, you're condensing the moisture in the air onto your skin much more than you're actually producing sweat from the inside of your body. And that's one of the major differences. Which one is associated with better health? That remains to be seen. So, know? okay. So to the listener who's reasonably new to sauna, what okay. would you say to them? Like digesting all this that, okay, do I do infrared? Do I just do dry sauna? My gym only has a dry sauna. What, what would you say is like a rough introductory protocol to start sauna? Well, I'm going to go back to the analogy we were talking about with exercise. So it's very individualized. It depends on how fit you are, how sauna fit, how exercise fit, how cardiorespiratory fit you are, what medical issues you have. Are you a man or a woman? Do you suffer from other medical conditions? You know, all of these have to play a role before we start prescribing saunas in medicine. And that is one of my huge research interest is how do we adapt the sauna to help us in treating, especially medical conditions. Um, so, you know, I would say, look, if you're someone who has any type of chronic fatigue syndromes or finds exercise difficult, you might want to start with an infrared sauna um, where it's operating at a lower temperature. Usually a lot of the studies and a lot of the, the most common use is at 60 degrees centigrade, as opposed to the Finnish style um, or the more traditional that or the, the like the Russian banya or the they tend to run at a higher, you know, anywhere from 70 to 100 degrees Celsius. So look at that load. And then certainly if you have issues with that, I would not be going into a steam sauna straight away. I, you know, I, I would tend to 
gravitate towards the drive. Now there's also, um, with women, I think it's important to, but I can't prove it yet, but I'm suspecting it's important to sync it with your menstrual cycle. So I don't know if you're familiar with Mindy Peltz's work. She's a chiropractic doctor out of the U.S., but she's written some great books like Fast Like a Girl, um, The Menopause Reset, and she does such a good job of talking about how uh, we get into trouble with exercise or fasting as women when we try and do these things at the wrong time in our cycle. And I think I'm suspecting sauna works the same way. I'm suspecting that if you're going to try sauna or really go hard on it, the best time to do it is in the what's called um, follicular phase, in the beginning of your menstrual cycle, like just after you've started your period. And for the two weeks after that, that's the kind of what Mindy Pell says called the, the power phase. And I suspect that's where exercise and sauna could best benefit women. Now, can I prove that yet? No, not yet. But it makes sense in that beginning of the cycle, our, our body temperature is a lot lower. It's that full degree lower. So we have more room to play with that thermal regulation versus in the later half of our cycle in the um, luteal phase. We've got that we're already running hot, if that makes sense. Mm. Um, but a lot of this is we're in an evidence-free zone. <laughs> but, but this is a zone I love, and there's a lot of room to move in that. And I think I can't wait to see how we can use these levers around that. Well, that's I guess that's what it's all about. I mean, it, it seems like the whole idea is to develop a hypothesis and try and prove it wrong, right? The, um, yes, yes. The, that's I think that's really, really um useful and interesting information there, Joy. The um what is all cause mortality? What does that mean? All cause mortality means um you're you're referring to like an epidemiological term, which is yes. how what uh how much of a percent of a population uh dies from premature dies prematurely from a different condition. And so Yes, in the Finnish sauna studies, they've, it's quite remarkable. I mean, they, they've, when they've, it's, again, it, these are called observational cohort studies. So what they've done in Finland is they took over 2,000, it was men to start with. They are following women now. But again, like I said, it, it's always gotten started with men. So over 20 years ago, Yari and the king of, of sauna research that I was mentioning before, he really had a great vision where he started following these men for cardiovascular outcomes. So things like all-cause mortality, rate of heart attacks, rate of stroke. And he also, because it's Finland, kept track of their sauna habits. And so this came out, this was a landmark study that came out in 2015 that just blew everyone's mind. And I was mid-PhD at the time, and I was like... Oh, if the universe is sending me a sign to keep studying sauna, this is it. <laughs> so, and he showed that, you know, there was nearly two thirds less. That's, that's huge. Um, all cause mortality deaths um, for those that more frequently sauna. Now the catch is what is frequently sauna? Well, in Finland, that's four or more times a week. Now, for us mere mortals in the rest of the world <laughs> that don't have maybe that kind of access to a sauna, you know, that that's a hard that's a harder outcome to achieve. 
people are starting to do it. Like I aim for three times a week. If I can get to three times a week, I know, okay, I'm, I'm doing. But in terms of like treating myself for that Raynaud syndrome I talked to you about, it's actually much less frequent than that. I found that as long as I sauna at least once every two weeks, which really isn't that much when you think about it, I can keep my, my vascular condition at bay. I mean, I'm, I'm, I feel, quote, cured. I, I forget I have it as long as I'm getting to the sauna at least every two weeks. And, um, and um, I know a few people with Raynard. So your Raynard is kept at bay through a regular sauna practice. Regular sauna. And I totally stumbled on this. This is what, this is actually the motivation for doing the PhD because I worked in Alaska for a number of years earlier on in my career. And I had bad Raynaud's at the time. I, I grew up in California, sunny California, really hadn't, hadn't had much to do with snow or anything. And when I accepted this position in Alaska, I still remember feeling, oh no, how am I going to deal with that cold? You know, my, my fingers, it's going to be, I can just feel the pain already. And then something happened. I mean, I got there and I ended up, I signed up for two years, ended up staying for five years because I loved it so much. But what did I start doing? Well, I started regular sawing. That's what everyone did in the wintertime. That's, that was our major social. It was a major social thing. And we need to come back to the social effects of sauna because that's really important too. But, but anyway, I didn't, I, I was, I didn't get it still after finishing, um, after finishing up in Alaska, I moved to Alice Springs of all places, hot, one of the hottest places in the world. And my brain started to come back within three months of moving to Alice Springs. And I remember thinking at the time, that's weird. Again, I still didn't put it together. It wasn't until my husband and I moved to Melbourne, which is a colder climate, and we ended up building a sauna because we were missing it for social reasons more than anything else. And it was when we, when I started sauna bathing regularly, and this was nearly 10 years later, that I went, oh my gosh, my brain oats is gone again. And that's when the bell went off. And that's when I said, oh my, we need to start studying saunas. And, and it, it nicely coincided with Yari and studies just two years later that came out. So Okay, wonderful. So yeah. you mentioned the social side of the sauna. I yes. mean, it, it's, uh, again, I think it's one of those things people feel anecdotally. Been in a sauna and actually for some reason, the, the context actually lends itself to good conversation, open conversations, what a vulnerable thing to do. Could, could you speak to what the social sun of the sauna is and, and how, how, does it, how does it affect you? Well, this gets to possibly one of the differences between infrared saunas and Finnish style or more traditional style saunas. And it has mostly to do with the cultural overlay. You know, infrared saunas have come out more in Western uh, kind of in, in the U.S. and Australia and places where there isn't so much of a cultural overlay and it tends to be marketed to an individual or they're smaller. And the nature of infrared radiation energy, too, it doesn't have as much of a, a, a link as a radiant um, electric one or wood burning or smoke saunas, the, the more traditional types. So, um, and I forget what we were talking about. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> we were talking about, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the, the, um, there's something about the connection to do with saunas yes. and why people connect do you yeah, is that that's it yeah yeah sorry okay, i just got off track there yeah so what what i think is that um in 
the more collective, more the finished style sauna. I think there's a lot of community that happens around that. And I know it's happened with us, with our finished style one, which is a little larger than the infrared sauna. So I tend to, that one, we get, we sauna regularly with our neighbors and you tend to, I mean, we're, we're cheapskates, so we tend not to run it unless more than one person's kind of into, into doing the sauna that night. So I really find there's a lot of talking that goes on. It's hard to stay angry in the sauna. I think, I think there's all kinds of mental health things going on. I also think, remember, I talked about the stuff that's happening in sweating, sweat content. I think a lot of hormones, a lot of, quote, pheromones or whatever you want to call it, communicating immune um, uh, chemicals are getting exchanged between people. Can I prove that yet? No, but that's another study I'd love to do is what are the aerosolized compounds that are happening that are getting exchanged in the sauna? I suspect there is something to that. Now, can you get that in infrared sauna? Sure, they're starting to make larger ones, and I suspect maybe that, but that's not the way the marketing has gone so far. It's something, um, there's lots of, I mean, you could sit here and think of lots of proposed mechanisms of why the sauna lends itself to social connection. I mean, whether it's like a shared physiological state, whether it's um, a massive rush of endorphins that get followed by dynorphin, or I, I, or the, fer- the, how do you say this, the pheromonal? Is that a word? Yes. Yes, the pheromonal effects. What happens, I heard you say on a podcast, what happens when people shake their hands? When people shake hands and are are observed? Yeah, they did a fascinating study that um, this was, I think this was around 10 or 15 years ago. I I stumbled on this early on in my my PhD thesis that they were, it was a psych, it was a psychology group, I think in the US that did this study, or maybe it was the UK, I can't remember. But they were videotaping people when they introduced each other and shake hands and watching what they did. And what was fascinating is um, people weren't aware of it, but almost everyone after you shake someone's hand was somehow smelling their hand. It was getting near their face. Their hands would somehow... and. It, it's just something they noticed as they were reviewing all the videotapes. And then this whole hypothesis came that maybe because we sweat a lot with our hands, that maybe when you're shaking, you're exchanging sweat and you're assessing. You know, again, there's all these things going on in our brain that we are clueless about. And I do wonder, like animals, I mean, watch our pets. What are the first thing they do? They're, they smell each other. They get a lot more out of smelling than they do at looking at each other. And I think that's something that uh, we can wake up to. This and, and think about our nose. That's the sense that's closest to the brain. So, and I actually, this is another idea. I, I have so many ideas around sauna, but mixing aromatherapy with sauna. Oh my gosh, I think there's a power in that that is totally unexplored. Um, because... It, it is in some of the cultural traditions. Like when I uh, toured saunas with the International Sauna Congress uh, five years ago, we went through all different types of saunas. And a lot of the um, Northern European, they'll often mix herbs and shake it around and uh, during a sauna. So there's the power of using different plant-based um, scents and molecules that I think 
are incorporating a lot of the cultural traditions that we that haven't reached mainstream yet. But I think there's something to that. And again, I just I would love to start to analyze some of that. Oh well, I'd love to read. I'd love to read it when you do. And uh, yeah, <laughs> please do, please do. I've learned a lot during this conversation, especially it seems like the the combination of factors, as opposed to just one isolated thing, um, yes. can lead to sort of greater sort of exponential health impacts um, from so many different points of view. Really, really fascinating. All this literature is amazing. Where do you think it's going, Joy? Well. I think we are in a crisis right now. Most of us will acknowledge that um, cardiovascular disease is the leading cause of premature death all over the world, not just rich countries, but also now the poor, some of the less socioeconomic well-off. They're also, uh, we are in a, an obesity crisis, you know, especially in the U.S., but it's happening every, uh, everywhere I've been traveling. I'm seeing people heavier and heavier. Um, and I think it's lifestyle changes, some of which we can control, some of which we can't, like the quality of our food and things like that, that have gotten us into this mess. And I think saunas as a tool, lifestyle tool that works on many different mechanisms, the same way that the lifestyle forces that have gotten us into this mess, I think sauna will be very useful for getting us out of this mess. And that's how I see the future. I see at least medicinally, I think sauna can be used to help a lot of these populations that are no longer staying active, aren't getting the, the multi-system benefits of exercise. This might be a way, I think, to access some of those and get people more active. Uh, I think this is something that I've, in my speaking with Eric Lee, We've talked about some of his studies. A lot of our back and forth, you know, he's talked about using the sauna to make exercise more accessible. And I think uh, as opposed to using it in place of exercise. And that's where we differ a little bit. I, I think as a practitioner, I struggle a lot of times getting people who don't like to exercise to exercise. And so I see sauna as maybe a way in place of that exercise. But I understand his coming from an exercise physiology point of view of how it can be used. So mm. I, I get it. And that's how I see the future. That's where I see it going. It's, it's, uh, yeah. I mean, there's such an evolving literature and it's so interesting to keep up with. I've got alerts of my emails, anything that comes through, I get, I get, I yeah. get the reading. I think paired with the, um, the growing social research growing out, coming out where, Whatever it is, an island, a tribe, a group, you need one. And I think a sauna is a really lovely place to congregate. And you get this yes. lovely twin benefit of all these health benefits plus the social benefits, which actually are the health benefits at the same time. Yes. And in fact, something we, we haven't mentioned but deserves a lot of mention is that Yari Lachanen in those big cohort studies also demonstrated there was much less incidence of dementia among those who frequently saunaed the four times a week or more. And that's another one of those scourges that's happening right now. And I think it's the mental health social side of sauna that might be at play there, not just the cardiovascular effects. And because we know that dementia isn't purely a cardiovascular mechanism driven, there's more involved there. 
So. Oh, so the mechanism. Yeah. Okay. I can see how you can argue for low, you can argue for the social as in you need people to be, to stimulate that side of the brain, but whilst yes. the, okay, sorry, I'm catching yes. up. Yes. And in fact, when you look at, uh, dementia interventions right now, the ones that work the best are exercise and social interaction. Those are, in fact, those are the only two things where there's some decent evidence. All the medications are, are not much better than placebo. So, but those two things, and isn't it interesting? Those are the two things that there's the most weight of evidence with sauna. So that's another direction I really see. And you had mentioned you you uh, dropped the line of brain derived uh, um, BDNF. And I'm forgetting what the N stands for. Brain derived uh, neurotrophic factor. I think. Neurotrophic factor. Well, there are. We're trying to get some. Uh, evidence to show that that increases with sauna. Now, there is some preliminary stuff, but it, it was done more in animals, I believe. And that's another pet peeve of mine, <laughs> not, to, not to make a funny joke about that. But I really think because sweating and our thermal regulation is so uniquely, our mechanisms are so unique in humans, I really struggle with the research that is trying to look at uh, sauna in animals to try and um, to try and enlighten our understanding of sauna in humans. And I think we're talking about two different things. Again, animals don't sweat. You know, I've seen sauna studies of hamsters, rats, mice, and I look at them and go, you know, they, they don't sweat like we do. And sweating isn't their major thermoregulatory response. It's panting, it's breathing. And I already told you, we don't breathe fast when we're in the sauna. So, you know, we're, we're thermoregulating very differently. And the BDNF, a lot of the mechanistic uh, studies are done in animals or were started in animals. Like I'm thinking of some Japanese studies and some old Russian and German studies. But, and that's another problem is English as a language. I mean, English is the language of science right now, but that wasn't the case in the past. And a lot of early sauna studies uh, were done in, in German and Russian and, and a lot of the Northern European languages that we still haven't gotten translated, these studies. But now, because technology are, is, you know, is growing so quickly and it's difficult to justify going back to to translate those studies when we'll always argue that they, they weren't using the, the same level of technology. So that's another problem with the sauna literature. Well, Joy, I could, I want to pull on all those threads and spend all day talking to you about all this stuff. Um, really fascinating. And I can't tell you how much I appreciate your time. I really, really enjoy that conversation. Where can we find you, Joy? Where can, where can listeners read more about what you're up to and, and following your journey? Well, I have a website for my clinic as well as my research. It's called healthwithjoy.com.au, and you can find me there. Um, you can find uh, all my studies are, are linked there. Um, but also, I'm very open to, yeah, that's where you can leave me a comment or Ask questions. I'm, I love sauna-related questions. Now, can I get to all of them? Not always, but I love seeing what people are wondering because it really, it inspires the kind of research that I want to do in the future is understanding what are people noticing? Because really, we're the best. The best researchers are the citizen researchers. And 
that's another study I want to set up is a citizen research sauna study where people, you know, come back. But anyway, I know I can di- keep digressing and I know we're looking we'll, we'll have to do a part two, Joy. I mean, there's so much we didn't cover. I'd love to, love I to get know. into I would love that. I would love that. Great. Well, Bye. Joy, thanks so much for your time and we'll see you soon. Thanks, Ben. Bye.